Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 68, Reflecting Love's Glory. Should we be worried about false prophets? And if so, how do we recognize them? What's the difference between judgment and punishment? And what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Let's go looking for answers in 1 John chapter 4. Hello, everyone. Good to be together again today as we're taking this journey through 1 John. Uh, Today, we're going to look at chapter 4, which is actually part 8 in this series. In chapter 4, John continues with the theme of love. Um, In fact, he uses the word love or loved 27 times just in the 21 verses of of this chapter. John, as I've said to you before, is such a pastor, a shepherd. He's a father. And he continues to to both direct and reassure the churches that are in his care. He he recognizes that they need building up right now. They've really been shaken by by this alternative, this false gospel that cessationists have brought, and uh, and they really just need some comfort. Pastors all recognize this. There's seasons in a church that they they just really need to be fathers and take care. Um, the first section we're going to look at today, John goes back to recognizing what is true and what is false teaching. And then in the second section, uh, it's it's built on the well-known truth that God is love. So so let's jump in uh, with the first section which we're going to call discerning false prophets. Verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Do not believe every spirit. The word pneuma uh, certainly can mean the Holy Spirit, but but it it's broader than that. It it can really mean that the kind of impulses that that they're not from God, but but they come to us and then they get expressed in in human words and actions. And I think this may be what John is referring to. We've seen before in Matthew's gospel that the the human spirit, yours and mine, are motivated either by God's spirit or from a spirit of deception. Remember when when, uh, Jesus had to turn to Peter and say, get behind me, Satan. John wants the churches to know that, that there are going to be other forces at work, and they can be at work in us or among us. And so because of this, discernment is really needed. You know, false prophets can sound right and reasonable. In fact, they usually do. Jesus warned of the same thing in Matthew. Uh, Matthew 7.15, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Matthew 24.21, And many false prophets will arise, and lead many astray. This was, Jesus was foretelling what was going to happen in the formative years of the church. We see in, in 2 Peter 2.1, he says the same thing, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you 
who will secretly bring in destructive opinions. Now, when he says, who've gone out into the world, it's pretty likely John is referring to the specific situation with the cessationists that we've referred to a number of times through this series. Because he already told them previously that the cessationists are identified by the very fact that they left them because they, they, they didn't belong. They decided to leave and declare another truth. And we know that false prophecy was a very real threat in these early formative years of the church. The Didache, which is a collection of teachings from in the second century, again, very early church. The Didache says this, But not everyone who speaketh in the Spirit is a prophet, but he is so who hath the disposition of the Lord. For their dispositions, they therefore shall be known, the false prophet and the prophet. In other words, he's saying just because uh, they say this is from the Lord, thus speaketh the Lord, um, it's not necessarily true. You need to look at their, he says disposition, that really means their whole life. So, he says there's false prophets, but now how do we recognize them? Verse 2 gives us, verse 2 and 3 gives us the criteria. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. What he's saying is, those who deny that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the flesh. And again, that goes back to what we taught earlier in this series. He's saying anyone who denies the incarnation that Jesus is fully human and is fully God is deceiving. And he used the word antichrist. I want to quote a church father that I haven't yet mentioned, Andreas of Caesarea. Uh, he is, is a late uh, church father from um, the 600s. He said this, To confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh does not just mean that he has come in his own flesh, but that he enters my flesh as well. Isn't that interesting? I think it's a very profound statement. So, John is addressing the issue of the cessationists who were pretty likely Gnostics. Let me just quickly review what we've said about the Gnostics. First of all, they stressed that they had a higher revelation, special knowledge. Uh, They exalted the mind, uh, more Greek thinking, concepts, ideas mattered more than doing. Boy, do we have to be careful of that in our day. Um, in our preaching and in our our church praxis. Secondly, they believed that the material world was evil, uh, and and some believed it was irrelevant. So what happened if it was evil? Gnostics tended to go into two camps. One, perfectionist. We've got to do everything just right to avoid evil. Or the other is what's called libertinism, which means anything goes because it doesn't matter anyway. Thirdly, 
They said that Jesus did not truly come in the flesh. He only appeared to come in the flesh. Because, and the reason is, for these Gnostics who thought that the material world was evil, it was unthinkable that he would come into flesh and blood because these were material things. By denying Jesus' full humanity, they were disdaining it. And, and by disdaining his humanity, ultimately this flowed out into disdaining all humanity. In other words, a lack of, of love, of seeing uh, human life as precious. And as I said, they denied the incarnation. So John comes back to this now again, this whole issue of, of truth and, and what, is, what is true knowledge. And he'll come back to that again. In fact, he's going to finish this whole book on that. But he's saying that true prophecy is built upon the foundational truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come in the flesh. That has to be the foundation for true prophecy. And he goes on to say, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you've heard that is coming and now is already in the world. Remember we said a few weeks ago, for John, Antichrists are those who deceive. It's a spirit of deception. And he's telling them and reminding us we must fight deception with the truth of the gospel, even when it's unpopular. Let's go on to verses 4 to 6. Little children, you are from God and have conquered them, meaning the cessationists. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There's quite a bit to unpack here. John, ever the pastor, the encourager, he's praising and congratulating a shaken church that they have already conquered the cessationists because they refuse to believe them or follow them. They're children of God, born from above, empowered by the Holy Spirit. They overcame the cessationist lie and deception by the power of the Holy Spirit that is in them. Spiritual security depends on the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and his work around our lives and through our lives. The Holy Spirit's work, he protects, he orders, he brings the right people into our lives at the right time. This is all the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, we, we make a, a great error when we don't give attention to the third person of the Trinity. Let me just highlight a few things John's telling us here about what, what the role of the Holy Spirit is. Um, when we feel threatened, we remember we have an anointing within us, an anointing from the Holy Spirit. Secondly, everything we need to know is taught to us by the Holy Spirit. Remember, we covered that in, in chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is God's seed in chapter 3. The Holy Spirit is the means by which the Father brings his children to birth. And then what we're going to go to in a few minutes is uh, in 7 to 21, the Holy Spirit leads believers to love each other. We're not an organization. We're an organism. We are the body of Christ. I was, I was reading Irenaeus this week. 
and 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 him reminding the church that we are the body of Christ. That isn't a term that we mean like the gathering of Christ or or even the club of Christ. He says we we incarnate Christ together. So John is showing his fatherly, assuring uh, role um, in these verses. The Holy Spirit is is um, in that's in. Sorry, the Holy Spirit that's in uh, these spiritual children of John's is more powerful, more loving, more intimate than anything the false teachers can declare. He's saying you don't have to feel afraid or unsure or insecure about who you are or what you believe. I have in the past, in the first stage of my walking with the Lord. I wrestled with this because I was I was around folks who said, we've got special knowledge, we've got a higher calling, and then you start thinking, oh, am I missing out? So John's saying, you're not missing out, and you don't have to be afraid. Greater is the power of the Holy Spirit that is in you. St. Hilary said this, God's power to save is always much greater than the devil's power to do harm. I'm going to say it again because I want you to really hear this. Because some of the church lives in fear of the devil. Oh, don't let him deceive you. Oh, don't let him do this. Don't let him do that. Well, yes, John, of course, is saying, be it, pay attention, but don't worry. So St. Hilary said, God's power to save is always much greater than the devil's power to do harm. Folks, there's a reality here. The world, and remember, Scripture says that Satan is the god of this world. The world influenced by the powers that be, by the enemy, will always listen to and accept anything that denies the truth of Jesus Christ as being fully God and fully man. And this is at the heart of Satan's attack. He's always denying truth and trying to sow doubt. It goes all the way back to the the garden, doesn't it? Genesis 3. So when the world responds this way to the gospel, don't be upset. Expect this from the world. Now, John said a really interesting thing here. Whoever knows God listens to us. Now, at first read, this this could seem like this is just arrogance. But no, it's not. John is taking a stand for truth at a time where he needed to take a stand for truth. And he's calling the the churches to remain with him in the safety of apostolic teaching, uh, the teaching of those who were commissioned. You know, this is still true today. Not everything that is said and done by professing Christians is necessarily from the Holy Spirit. Today, we must be discerning. What they're saying, does it agree with Jesus as revealed in the Gospels? Does an angry God agree with Jesus as revealed in the Gospels? Does an unforgiving God Does one that judges people groups, does that agree with Jesus as revealed in the gospel? Well, of course not. By the way, I think we need to be especially cautious about new revelation, new teaching. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun, and and I believe that. 
So John is reminding us that the spirit of the world can influence Christian teaching. I'll give you a few obvious examples. The prosperity gospel, which is has really touched um, the church, especially the evangelical church in North America. But it is something we deal with when we are ministering in, especially, I think, more than any other place in East Africa. That 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 is a distortion. That's 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 teaching that is supposed to be Christian, but it's not because it doesn't reflect Christ. Uh, I talked to you a couple of weeks ago about Christian nationalism. I uh, that is that is I think a dangerous deception. What what John called Antichrist. Well, let's move on. The second section is the much longer one, and it's one that I've. I've really been contemplating and working carefully and slowly through preparing this teaching because it is so important. God is love. You see, this is the heart of John's letter. I believe it's his greatest theological insight. And when this penetrates into our hearts, God is love. When it penetrates our hearts and our minds, it changes everything about God, about ourselves, about others, this is the great central truth. So let's look at verse 7 and 8. Beloved, there's that beautiful word again. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. I mean, even People who don't read the Bible, even non-Christians, know that phrase. Church father St. Isaac said this, We breathe the air of resurrection when we love. Wow, isn't that amazing? That would make a t-shirt. So John's returning to this theme of loving one another. He's going to say it uh, three times in these 15 verses. Everyone who loves. Loving one another is a sign of belonging to God. It's also a sign of being born from above, of experientially knowing God. And we're going to look a little more at this in the next few minutes. Folks, I really, really believe this and have for a long, long time. True intimacy with God inevitably must lead to greater love for others, that it blossoms. We're back to what uh, Jesus said in John 15, the vine and the branches, that, that, that if the source is love, God is love, then the fruit has got to be loving. Verse 8, here it is. The great central truth, God is love. The first half of John's letter was really dominated by a theme of God is light. He's truth. He's true knowledge. And now he's shifting. God is love. For John, love is deeply theological. And love is never independent of God. It comes from God because love is who God is. Now, John is going to say this again and again and again. And so, in reflection, I'm going to be saying it in different ways repeatedly over the next several minutes. John sees 
that love and God are so inseparable that he writes in verse 7, everyone who loves is born of God. We, we, we've got to hold on to this tightly in our day. If I could shout this out to you in capital letters, I, God is love, full stop. Not, yes, but he's also judgment, he's also righteousness. This is what I get confronted with. This is what, what folks in our team get confronted with. And we, we need to help people see their way through this. God is love, full stop. Everything flows to us and to all of his creation from his and because of his love. This is so important that next week I've asked Brad, Brad Jerzak to come uh, and we're going to do a whole episode uh, dedicated to these three words, God is love. It's the greatest revelation in the entire New Testament. Remember, it comes from John, who's had 30 years of contemplation, of study, uh, of going deeper and deeper. 30 years after all the other New Testament writers had died, 60 years after Jesus' ministry, he contemplates, and what he comes to is, love is who God is. Well, we're going to move on since we're going to cover this even deeper next week. Verse 9 and 10, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. This passage is probably the clearest picture of God's love um, in, in all of this letter. John is the New Testament writer who, more than anyone else, clearly explains how God has loved humanity. He tells us that God or that love has an object, us, right here in this, this, this passage, toward us. That Love has an action that he sent his son. That love is sacrificial, canonic love. We've talked a lot about that, cruciform love. And as we're going to see in the next verse, love has a result that we might live through him. God is taking the church and us way beyond loving feelings or affection. He's challenged us challenging us to recognize love by God's standards, not the world. We've got several things to cover out of these verses. The first one is atonement. He loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, this is such a key shift for uh, such a huge part of the church that I'm going to do a direct review from several weeks ago because I don't think we get it the first time. The two main words, depending on your translation, well, actually three words. One is atonement, but the other is propitiation. A bunch of you will have that in your Bible. And some will have expiation. So what do these words mean? Propitiation is something done to win favor of an angry God. 
It's his wrath directed away from sinful humanity and toward his sacrificial victim. Remember, they used to, the priest, the high priest would put his uh, hands on the head of the goat and in, in, in put onto him all the sins of the nation for the last year, and then the goat would go out into the desert, uh, never to be seen again. That's the scapegoat. But the second word is expiation, which means the removal of guilt without any implication of wrath. Expiation nullifies an offensive act. Now, both of these words are translations of one word, hilasterion. We talked about it a few weeks ago. It is an important word. And whatever word that is used to translate hilasterion reveals the theology of the translator. I promise you that. If he translates it as propitiation, that tells you something. If it's expiation, that tells you something else. So, does hilasterion mean the removal of guilt and the purifying of the sinner, expiation? Or does hilasterion mean the appeasing of God's anger toward sinners? Uh, or does it mean God's action toward sinners? The best way to clarify this is to go back to the Old Testament. And as I've taught you, the Septuagint, sometimes you'll see in the margin LXX, that's just the short form for Septuagint, was the Greek translation, but it was the translation that, that Jesus, that Paul, that the early church used. So if we go back to the word hilasterion in the Old Testament, it's found many, many times, 28 times. Every one of them does not refer to propitiation or expiation. It refers to the mercy seat in the tabernacle. Isn't that interesting? Exodus 25, 22, God says to Moses, there I will meet with you and from above the helisterion, the mercy seat uh, from between the two cherubim that are in the Ark of the Testimony. Uh, Hebrews 9, 5, above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover, overshadowing the hysterion, helisterion. The mercy seat the place uh, on the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, over the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, and, and it was from here that, that God would speak mercy and invited reconciliation. Now, you're getting not just me today, you're, you're going to be getting from some different folks, but one of them, of course, is a great friend of this ministry, Brad Jerzak, and I'm going to quote him twice today at some length. Here's the first one. In the New Testament, the cross becomes the mercy seat, the hilasterion, from which God in his glory as the one lifted up speaks mercy and reconciliation. Please hear that. Not punishment. He speaks mercy and reconciliation. There was certainly shedding of blood, just as there had been on the day of atonement, which is, if you break it out phonetically, at one meant which means reconciliation, not appeasement. But not to satisfy the wrath of an angry God. Rather, it was God in Christ forgiving the wrath of an angry mob. 
In other words, at the cross, we deserve condemnation and judgment and wrath for murdering the Son of God. But instead, God freely and graciously responds with mercy and forgiveness. So here it is. Helisterion equals mercy seat, which equals Jesus and the cross. I know that was an exact review from a few weeks ago, but we have got to get this, folks. We need this huge paradigm shift. Let's move on. Verse 11. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. Paul wrote in a similar way in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. If the definition of love is to be fully realized in Christ's self-giving sacrifice of himself on the cross, then how do we love as he loved? How do we love in a similar way? God's love focused on action upon our greatest need. And our love for others should recognize their needs. I think that the kind of love John is talking about here starts with really seeing others, not allowing people to be invisible. Let's move on, verse uh, verse 12 to 15, another jam-packed section. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. Boy, there's a lot there. First thing he says is, no one has seen God. This is a direct echo of what he wrote. John wrote in his uh, gospel, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. It is the only Son, himself God, who is close to the Father's heart and who has made him known. Now, no one has ever seen God. But there's many episodes in the Old Testament where people did see God and live. Abraham, Jacob, many. So what does this mean, no one has ever seen God? I think what it means is no one has ever seen the essence of God. God is the original source. Uh, He is completely transcendent, completely beyond us. However, they did see him, and we can see him when he manifests himself. Well, how does he manifest himself? John 1.18 tells us that Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, is intimately close to the Father and has revealed him. He said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. <coughs> this is so true of the Old Testament. I'm, I'm right now going through uh, really carefully some of the minor prophets. But, but Jesus, God the Son, 
manifests himself again and again and again in the Old Testament. I think I'm going to talk about this in an upcoming series. It's not just that he appears like the the burning bush, but that that the Old Testament itself becomes a manifestation of who he is. So we'll develop that in a few months from now. We don't really know who God is until we look at Jesus. The second thing I want us to see is abiding. Four times in these verses, John again is showing us something reciprocal in abiding. Abiding changes our heart toward others. We become more loving. This loving others then increases our sensitivity to God's presence. It's like a positive spiral. Um, And he says it's being perfected or completed in us. Abiding is linked to the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. I just want to say again, when you spend time quietly with the Lord, in prayer, when you open the scriptures, uh, read carefully, contemplatively, but be very, very intentional about inviting the Holy Spirit into your contemplation and scripture reading. Let's move on. Savior of the world. This is really big. We're going to be here for a few minutes. Remember the work of the cross, hilasterion, mercy, reconciliation, is the completed work that has already been fully accomplished for the whole world. Do you hear that? Already been fully accomplished. Not just for those who prayed a sinner's prayer. Salvation is a gift that has already been given, but it must be received. We are called, I believe with all my heart, as disciples of Christ, and we are so committed at Impact Nations. I'm so committed to the Great Commission, to making disciples. But we're called to declare the totality, the magnificence of this incredible gift that of what God in Christ has done, and to invite people to live in the reality, not just to accept Jesus, but to live in the reality of recognizing and drawing upon the completed work by which Christ has already come to everyone. It's not he wants to save you, but he already has. I have a text exchange this past week with Brad on this very point, verse 14. And uh, he sent me a response that uh, I think rather than paraphrasing, I'm going to just read it to you. We are used to associating being saved with the moment we exercised our faith in Christ and made a commitment to him. That decision or experience was indeed very important. Amen to that. But it is not the whole story when we read the New Testament. The New Testament includes in our salvation, first of all, the past. Christ saved us at the cross when God in Christ reconciled the world to himself, even while we were still enemies. Secondly, the present sense. 
God, Christ is saving us right now, which includes an ongoing work of redemption that includes a whole series of important waypoints leading up to including and following our conversion. In other words, he's still saving us. The theological word is sanctification, which is why, by the way, we need to continue to pray, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And then there's the future sense. Christ will complete the work of salvation at the resurrection when he clothes us with immortality. So we've been saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. Okay. Many of you are saying, okay, I knew that. But now listen. The invitation then, as we give a gospel invitation, is to surrender ourselves to God's saving work and begin to enjoy the eternal kind of life that comes from knowing him. Let's be clear. We do not save ourselves through a right decision or belief or doctrine. Jesus saves us and calls us to participate and experience what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. I found that very helpful. And you may want to go back and listen to that again. The fourth point from this passage is that God's love is brought to its intended goal when we love others. It's through human beings that God's love finds fulfillment. And fifthly, John tells us how we can be confident that God lives in us. Remember, that's the other issue. A church that needs to be made confident that, that God, the Spirit of God, is at work in them. Number one, he says in verse 12, we can be sure if we love one another. Number two, if we've been given his spirit. Number three, if we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And number four, which we'll pick up in the next verse, if we abide in the love of God. So let's go to that next verse. So we have known, verse 16, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. There it is again. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Another favorite verse. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. John just keeps centering in on this. God is love. Now, St. Augustine rather famously said this, love, and then do what you will. He goes on to say, whether you hold your peace through love, hold your peace. Whether you cry out, through love, cry out. Whether you correct, through love, correct. Whether you spare, which means do not correct, uh, through love, do you spare. Let the root of love be within. Of this root can nothing spring but what is good. By the way, um, St. Augustine also saw this uh, this passage is being very Trinitarian. And let me just give you one more back-to-back Augustine quote. When we come to the subject of love, which is what God is called in Scripture, the Trinity begins to dawn a little. For there is the lover, the Father, the beloved, the Son, 
and love the Holy Spirit. I just, I, I really enjoyed that quote. Let's look at another key word in this passage, believe. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. The word believe, as I told you a few weeks ago, is pistevo. It means to place our confidence, our trust, our faith in him and only in him and all that he is. He is fully the divine son, the incarnate God, the sinless human, the savior. We can't be selective. Well, I believe this about him, but not so sure about that. It is believing all of that. That is what it means, putting our complete confidence and trust. He's calling us, John's calling us to trust in all that Jesus is, every aspect of him with every part of us. So to believe in terms of New Testament language is much deeper than our modern concept. It goes way beyond agreement with a doctrinal statement, way beyond. It is an ever-deepening relationship with the triune God that is built upon trust and confidence in his mercy and his transformative work in my life. We'll look next week because John's going to return to believe four times in the final chapter. And what is it that we're confident about? What is it that we believe in? He lays it out for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. You see why I told you from the very introduction of this series that John uses repetition. It's called amplification, that he he drills down deeper and deeper and deeper. He comes back, and if we're not careful, we can say, oh, he's already said that. He's adding new nuances, new shades each time. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Now, John has just said, we have known the love that God has for us. He's talking about experiencing his love, his his imminent uh, presence that is among us is absolutely vital. And I say among us. This is another reason why we need to come together to worship to exercise spiritual gifts, to pray with and for one another. It's the coming together. There's a corporate experience that enriches us deeply. And it's this experience, both individual and corporate, that moves us from knowing about God to knowing God. Boy, we've settled so easily and so long for knowing about God. Another Bible study, another book where he's calling us to know him. You notice that John just can't go very long without encouraging the church to abide. Those who abide in love, abide in God, is not meant to correct or admonish like you better start abiding, but rather it's an invitation into the life that God has for us. N.T. Wright wrote this, The word abide is a simple one, meaning to remain or make one's home. But the reality is profound. Going to the heart of what Christian faith is all about, this is the meaning of her fellowship, the sharing of a common life between the Father, the Son, and all those who belong to the Son who confess that Jesus is God's Son. Abiding is the opposite. It means to stay, to remain. It's the opposite, and 
John, I think, is very pointed in using this word. It's the opposite of going out, and that's what he defined the movement of the cessationists as they don't belong with you because they've gone out from you. Well, let's come back to God is love, just briefly. John is underlying, underlining the great, great truth that he first expressed in verse 8, God is love. This one truth, beloved, is worthy of all the attention, all the contemplation, all the meditation that we can ever give it. This is the truth that shapes and transforms us. In silence and solitude, his love will overtake us, and it will immerse us again and again and again. Full disclosure, again this morning, as I was just being quiet before him, just waves of his presence. This is the truth that is worthy of everything. Let's move on. Verse 17 and 18. Love has been perfected among us or completed among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Another verse people know. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. He's talking about judgment. And there will come a day, and some believers are surprised to find out what the scripture says, there will come a day when all of us will come before the judgment seat of God. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive due recompense for actions done in the body, whether good or evil. This has been a really powerful passage for me, 1 Corinthians 3, 15, uh, 13 to 15. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. It's a purifying fire, folks. It's a refining fire. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Isn't that interesting? And he's speaking to believers. You see, the believers in the early church knew there would come a day when they would stand before Christ and give an account for their lives. That was a certainty. But John's not giving a warning here. Instead, he's bringing comfort to them. He's saying you don't have to be afraid. Raymond Brown, a great theologian, said this, Neither in this world nor on judgment day can a Christian be judged negatively by a God who dwells lovingly within. You see, we live righteously, and certainly John calls us to that. Paul calls us to that. Jesus, we saw it in in our study of Matthew, to live righteously. But it's not out of fear. It's out of love. John writes, as he is, so are we in the world. What does he mean by as he is? Well, in the moral sense, uh, 
Jesus' life is a pattern uh, for those who are in union with him. And Christ is at work in the world through him. Now, we come to perfect love casts out fear. As I said, a very popular verse. We tend to recite this when we're in a threatening situation, when our circumstances are making us feel anxious. And of course, there's nothing wrong with this. But this is really not what John is saying. As the context makes clear, he's not just talking about, well, whenever fear is there, I'm not saying that isn't true, but that's not what John's saying. John is referring to the fear of judgment before God, what we just talked about a a little bit ago. But he says there's nothing left for us to fear once we have understood God's love for us. Paul Tillich, who was a 20th century theologian, he said this, Faith is the courage to accept acceptance. And that's what I think John's getting at here. Our last two verses, we love, starting at verse 19, last three verses, we love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate a brother or sister are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they've seen cannot see God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters. A theme we've seen before. So again, we're seeing that, that John is using repetition to amplify. It's, it's just a, a form of rhetoric to persuade or to get people's attention. This is why John repeated what he wrote in verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. One of the really early verses for me when I came to Christ 46 years ago was Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That just hit me so much because I didn't come out of a, of a, of a Christian home and culture. I, I came right out of the world with all, all my stuff and there was lots and he rescued me. And, uh, and, and this verse just turned me to him again and again and again as I thought of what he rescued me from. So if Christ reached out to me and to you and died for us while we were still sinners, while we ignored him, while we we willfully just went the other way, and, and while we didn't even care about him, then if he died for us then and rescued us then, Clearly, anything that tries to persuade us that we have to do something for him to fully accept us cannot possibly be true. John moves us from theoretical faith and love to authentic faith and love. He makes no room for kind of ethereal, theoretical, hallmark greeting card kind of love that makes no difference. In the starkest of terms, if you don't love the people around you, then you are being inauthentic in your expression of love for God. Now, I want to conclude this, and I'm going to conclude it in a very different way, because just this morning, I I received uh, what I'm going to share with you um, from someone that I walk really, really closely with, Um, and... uh, you know, a number of us meet together electronically 
from time to time to talk about the depths of the beautiful gospel. And uh, I got this today. And he's drilling into the central truth of 1 John that God is love. In fact, what he sent me today, God and love are interchangeable. You'll notice that. When he says love, he means it because God is love. So you, when you hear love, you can hear love or you can hear God. Uh, love, of course, cannot be separated from God because love is who God is. I think it's really interesting that I received it this morning. He had no idea what I would be teaching on. <sighs> so here we go. And here is the revelation that is shaping my life today, he writes. Love does everything to recapture my heart with the purpose of doing everything to restore my heart. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. We always have to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, for you are dearly loved by the Lord. He proved it by choosing you from the beginning for salvation through the Spirit, who set you apart for holiness and through your belief in the truth. To this end, he handpicked you for salvation through the gospel so that you would have the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's his observation. Salvation comes as you receive the good news that you have always been loved and that love is, has already saved you. The proof, proof that you are loved is in love's choosing you and the declaration of saved over your life. Salvation that has already happened, past tense salvation, gifts me with restored, intimate, right relationship with God. This is gifted to me by love. I don't earn, deserve, or play any role. I receive the good news that love has loved me back into love's arms. And these arms of love will hold me safely in salvation's story forever. This is not a provable truth. It is a faith truth, a truth that I receive with questions, doubts, and mystery firmly present. It is an encounter experience truth that is written by love on the lining of my heart. Again, when you hear love, you can hear God, you can hear love right together. Don't ask me for proof. Don't look for an intellectual argument from me to try to convince you. I will only invite you to your own personal encounter with love. For love speaks to the heart, and the heart has truth that reason cannot find meaning. Salvation ongoing, present tense salvation, is love's ongoing presence restoring me into me. This is the glory of love. The so that of love is to see me become the lover I have always been and then reflect this love into a world desperate for me to be me, to be the lover me. Love created me in love's image. God created me in God's image. And salvation has ongoing purpose in my life in that I am transformed by the presence of love as I experience all the glory of love from personal encounter. So this is the so that, this is the to the end of salvation. 
me experiencing love's glory and then becoming love's glory and then reflecting love's glory. Past tense salvation makes me right positionally, relationally. It gives me the identity, security, and significance of being loved by love, by God. Present tense salvation restores me through relational proximity into the extended end of salvation's purpose, the restored lover, me, reflector to the world of love itself. And he goes on, but I think we'll stop there. I'm really looking forward to next week meeting with you and with Brad as we as we go deeper into this incredibly important, the important truth. It cannot be love and. Yes, but. God is love, full stop. God bless you. I'll get together in a minute or two. We can talk with Tim about some of the things that have come up today. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. So just before we jump into questions today, I had a video I wanted to share with you guys, uh, as we are wont to do sometimes. Uh, this video is of my friend Trinity in Uganda. Uh, as many people at Impact Nations would know, we do not do satellite offices. We, we are operating in a lot of different nations around the world, and yet uh, we've only got uh, our one head office here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, in places like Uganda, India, uh, Colombia, Philippines, the work that we're doing is all through partnership. Uh, we work on a partnership model with local leaders, local churches, uh, local registered charities that are being led by indigenous leaders. We love the work that they're doing. We come alongside and say, hey, we clearly share a passion for seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ come and transform lives. Uh, we clearly share a value system where we believe the gospel is powerful enough to transform every part of life. You're already doing the work. How can we help? What can we do to help you uh, further your ministry? And so Impact Nations uh, often uh, will bring levels of expertise, uh, some uh, perhaps some fresh perspectives, often some curriculum of some kind to help uh, expand their knowledge base and things like that. Uh, and of course, through the help of the Impact Nations family, often we're uh, bringing additional capital so that they can do even even more uh, to impact the community around them. So anyway, recently we've been asking some of our partners, since you have partnered with Impact Nations, uh, what's that partnership been like? Uh, and so this video today that we're going to share with you, and there'll be several others in the weeks to come as well, but uh, this video from Trinity uh, is him just answering the question, since partnering with Impact Nations, how have you seen your ministry grow? Here's Trinity. When Impact Nation became our partners, they didn't just become our partners, they became our family. And over the period of years, we've been able to work on so many projects that have impacted the lives of underserved people across Uganda. Under the Elevate program, we've been able to create over 1,500 skilled jobs for young people living in the slums across Uganda. Under the Ask for Women program, we've been able to help over 1,000 women start their own small businesses. And under the Feeding program, we've been able to provide over 500,000 meals for refugees and people living in the slums across Uganda. 
Okay, I have a question. Uh, John seems to be pretty broad when he says, he said, basically, everyone who loves is born of God. And Mm -hmm. there's lots and lots of people who would either be agnostic, deny Christ, whatever, who would say, I love and I love well. Um, Are they are they born of God? Like, well, this ties back a little bit to two weeks ago when I when I talked about uh, that very issue, and we we looked at John one twelve, and uh, you know, the, everyone who believes Son of God, mm-hmm. the Child of God. Um, there is. Um, remember, we talked about there being, in one sense, it includes everyone, and in another. It's it's really those. Yeah, who, actually, who I really appreciate that, Chinchi. So uh, they're both lang- both both of those ideas exist. And they, they do. They exist in tension, and they're both true. Yeah, and this relates to that. Okay, uh, but I um, I would say this. I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. I think that even when, and I know some people. I've got some relatives that are some of the most loving people I know, but they don't. They haven't turned their hearts to Christ. But I, but I think John is saying when we love, it's connected to that common grace we talked about two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. When we love, we are actually drawing on God even if we don't know it. Right. We're operating in our true self in that moment. Yeah, the, the, and his self is flowing through us Precisely, in that yeah. Our true self as image bearers. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think actually I'd written down that question before you got to the to the tail end of the chapter because I think also when you look at it in the context of the entire chapter, he's also in a sense uh, he's implying the opposite, which is to say, look, if you if you don't love, you you can't be that. Like you, yeah. There's a corrective. There's a yeah. corrective there, yeah. and remember that's because the context of everything is this. This great turmoil with the cessationists mm-hmm. yeah. who did not love. Yeah. Um, can we just come back to false prophets briefly? Because it, mm-hmm. it seemed important enough for John to put it in there. And it, yep. this is one of those things, actually, it's funny sometimes. I don't know about you, but sometimes with biblical reading, I, I'll i read the full chapter and draw so much from portions of it, such as you know where we've just finished with this incredible talk of, of God is love and, and these things. And then I, I suddenly jump back to a question from the beginning of the chapter. I'm like, how the heck did we get onto false prophets? Like, where where was where did that come from? Yeah. Uh, and how did he get from there to God is love? I, uh, He's circling back, isn't he? Indeed. Chapter, chapter yeah. two or like chapter three. Yeah, and so it's almost this kind of uh, parenthetical thing about false prophets. Do we need to – is that something people should really be aware of? Like, I have seen – some people kind of get wound up with this yeah. false prophecy thing, yep. and oh, they're a false prophet, and just looking yep. for ways to call people out and things like that. How much should this be on our radar, and how much do we not need to? Worry yeah, about that's really it? good. It's a big topic. Um, you know, my mentor is John Wimber. Mm-hmm. Used to say um, that because we're afraid of, we shut everything down. Mm. And he said, and he said, practically speaking, if somebody in a meeting gets up and gives a prophecy that's off. Everybody knows it. Hmm. They can feel it. Yeah. Um, so he says, "Don't." Uh, he, he doesn't worry too much about that. But on the other side, in the in the macro, mm-hmm. I think that there are uh, deceivers, mm-hmm. false prophets that sound very good and probably believe what they're saying. Yeah. But as I said today, does it match up with Christ? Mm-hmm. 
and um, and so I think that we need to look at that. One of the things is, you know, we had a classic a year and a half ago when yeah. when we had all of these quote famous prophets mm-hmm. prophesying a particular. Uh, I won't refer to the election result, right. but but then say, but not. But not saying well, I got it wrong. Right. They just kind of. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a tangible example. Maybe I shouldn't have used that. Uh, we might well, even edit that out of this. I don't know. But it's a, <laughs> it, it is an example. Yeah. That there has to be accountability. Yeah. That's one of the biggest things. I think in prophecy, uh, there's got to be accountability to yeah. other people to the church. We got to be accountable for what we say. Indeed. And if we get it wrong. Because uh, we see through a glass darkly, yeah. rather than digging in, um, we need to say, you know what, I was wrong. What do you think about prophecy in terms of its purpose? Because the example you've just given, I think it actually is prophecy falling well outside of its purpose, yes. as described by by Paul in, in his letter to the Corinthians. Like uh, it, prophecy is for the building up of the body, yep. and that I don't think that means that prophecy always needs to be a, a nice cushy message of "Aren't you great? God thinks you're special." But uh, because I think there is encouragement in a gentle rebuke and things like that as well, uh, and and maybe a you know a prophetic, "Hey, I'm I see something that." the Lord's pointed out to me and I want you to consider it. But uh, but if you don't come away from prophecy being built up, then I think it probably is not prophecy. Not doing much. Yeah. yeah. And and what's happened for us, you know, the, the verse you quoted from 1 Corinthians 14, uh, its purpose is edification, encouragement, and comfort. Well, in our language now, we've kind of blended edification and encouragement. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not. They're two very different Greek words, and and it means literally to build. Edification is a word to build, mm-hmm. and so sometimes we build um, by correcting. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we build by saying, "Look over here. This is the way," um, and that's not quite the same as encouragement. But the the end result is that the church is built up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we need because I don't think I don't think we need to look for a lot of dare I say can I say this Christian fortune telling mm. yeah um, I don't think we need to yeah. uh, you know I got into a I was in a, a a movement that for a little while on this area lost its way and it and mm-hmm. it's so attractive and people will come to conferences from all over the world mm-hmm. to hear somebody who can give them a fortune telling yeah. thing and and it's so much more important than that it is folks who are listening 1 Corinthians 14:3 you're wondering about prophecy go back right there because mm-hmm. that's what it is yeah. and it doesn't necessarily start with thus saith the lord right though it may yeah <laughs> indeed um there's a word presbytery, uh, which is used yeah. that can refer to a, a gathering whereby there's kind of an expectation of prophetic words over yeah. people. Uh, is that is that getting pretty close to that fortune telling sort of thing, or is no. there is there a place for gathering 
with the expectation that somebody who, in the same way that, to be blunt, like you've got a healing ministry, like the Lord uses you to, to heal people. So when you go places to preach, I've seen it. People who are sick and in need of healing show up. Yeah, they sure uh, do. And a lot of them get healed. Yeah. Uh, in the same way, somebody who's been gifted with the gift of prophecy, if they show up to speak, I, it seems reasonable to me that people would show up Yep. Expecting Absolutely. A, a word from we, the Lord. I had a dear, dear friend who you knew, David Pilthorpe, who's mm-hmm. with the Lord now. When he and I traveled, especially overseas, there was something that happened in the spirit. I don't mm-hmm. know. It was like the, the one and one made three. Yeah. And uh, he absolutely had a remarkable ability, but he wasn't saying, and you're going to do this and you're going to do that, but rather this is how the Lord sees you. Mm. And here, here's some of the, the really precious things that maybe others don't know, but yeah. he wants you to know that he knows. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That isn't Christian fortune teller. Yeah, that's helpful. Good. Um, this is a big one, and I, we could be here a long time, but John talks about perfection in love. And when I see that word perfection, I squirm because I'm like, well, how are we ever going to get there? Uh, <laughs> you know, he's – is it reasonable for us to think that we should reach for this perfection even though we will never reach perfection? Uh, I mean – Okay. <laughs> we're, 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 back to, uh, we're back to Paul and Philippians. And one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I press on to yeah. the upward call. Uh, I'm of the opinion, and I think it's a majority opinion, that uh, perfection will happen on the other side. Mm -hmm. Um, But he encourages us to keep growing and moving more and more into who we really are. So that's what I think is involved there. Um, Just a a small thing, by the way. I was... I just finished John's Gospel yesterday. I tried oh, to read it's a good it. book. I yeah. like that one. <laughs> it's pretty good. I try to read it multiple times a year. Uh, and so I just finished my my most recent reading of it uh, and was reminded as I was reading it that his resurrection account includes a very interesting depiction of the mercy seat as Mary sticks her head into the tomb to see if, in fact, Jesus is gone and finds two angels sitting on either side of where Jesus had lay. And I just – I thought – you know, there's it, it's definitely no coinky dink that John put that in there. Nope. It's just, uh, you know, in our modern vernacular, an Easter egg, if you will, uh, of uh, an Easter egg. <laughs> but uh, that really is just a little hidden reference to Absolutely. the mercy seat. Yeah. And, and, and uh, it's funny you say that because I was just reading today in uh, First Kings about the the building of the temple and, and a lot of attention given. To the cherubim, the the angels at either side, yeah. And uh, you know, I I I heard Brad Jerzak say that um, a type of that is the thief on his right and on his left at, the, at the hill. Isn't that <laughs> oh, interesting? Yeah, that'll make you think. <laughs> yeah, uh, Brad said that, not me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> send your emails to Brad. We don't want them. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, if believing in Jesus, sorry, I'm firing a lot of questions your way. I hope that's it's okay. okay. Uh, but if believing in Jesus is is more than just a thought, but it is put as you said, putting your complete trust in Jesus. Um, 
we we know from the preaching in Acts, you know, what what must we do to be saved? Repent and believe. Uh, and I think sometimes maybe we kind of blow past that believe word like it's a smaller thing. Uh, but the way you described it again today uh, was it really is an action word of putting your trust yep. in Jesus. How does that affect, knowing that, how does that affect the way you, you preach the gospel and the way you invite people to respond to the gospel? Wow. In terms of, you, like, do you use that word trust? How do you incorporate that concept in when you're, when you're inviting people to respond to, to Christ? I've never been asked that, and I don't even know, because, you know, I... You just do it. I just do it. I, yeah. don't, I don't know. <laughs> but, but I know that I really focus on, without using the word, how trustworthy he is, how mm-hmm. beautiful he is, yeah. and that he's already done it, and uh, just step into what he's already got there. Yeah. Um, but I think that repent and believe, metanoia, mm-hmm. right, is, yeah. is, is change, the way, change the way you think. Yeah. And, and believe, as I said, is a much bigger word Pistebo, which is is almost a reorientation. Real trust will reorient your life, mm-hmm. right? So that's what it is, and that's why I'm not very excited about the sinner's prayer, yeah. although I've used it for decades. Mm-hmm. But as I've gone deeper these last 10 years, I don't mind it if, if it's an invitation into a new journey mm-hmm. rather than, okay, now you're saved. Right. Um, I think... You know, I loved, it was Craig who shared that at the end. Yeah. And I loved how that dovetailed with what Brad, in our text exchange several days ago, yeah. uh, about salvation in thinking way beyond um, a particular moment and praying a prayer. Yeah. Uh, it is so transformative. I hope next week we're going to find language for how transformative it is. Mm-hmm. To deep down into the heart, yeah. God is love. In our in our ministry, when we we have you and I both and many of our friends have opportunities often to preach the gospel to people who've never heard it before, and we add a level of urgency in terms of responding to the gospel now, and that's because we don't we're not likely to be back in that village. Yep. But we've also spent a lot of time and effort making sure that we are leaving behind a discipleship model yes. that will lead people into that lifestyle of trust. In fact, I won't go in and do a big outdoor meeting unless I've unless done we that, know that first. Yeah, the, it, the mechanics are it has brought me to tears in the past until yeah. I figured this all out when when maybe three, four hundred people come forward and I look for the pastors to take mm-hmm. care of them and they're all gone away. Yeah. Uh, Here's my question related to that. There, we share the gospel, we tell a gospel story, uh, we summarize the gospel, and it leads to a place of decision. And we want to lead people to a place of decision. Uh, and we've got whatever it is, the 20 minutes to do that. Uh, you, more often than not, I think, do lead them in, in a prayer, in yes, a response prayer. Uh, whether or not you want to call that a sinner's prayer or what have you, I think that that's effectively it is a a prayer to respond and uh, repent and believe. How has your how has the way you lead people in that prayer, the prayer specifically, how's that changed in recent years? Oh, it's become much more inviting them to enter into the experience okay. of what has already happened. Mm-hmm. 
rather than if you receive Jesus, um, then he will come into your life. Mm -hmm. It is, it's already done, but this news has been so wonderful. We wanted you, I've just got to tell you about this Mm -hmm. and that it's already done. That's good news. And, and let's, let me encourage you today to to start a journey of experiencing him mm-hmm. uh, I think we need a way more experiential gospel yeah so that would be one of the ways how do you incorporate the concept of repentance in uh, in the context of that prayer John, in terms of that John 10 10 you yeah. know I always go back to John 10 10. It's turning your orientation. You've seen me do this. Yes. There, there will be hundreds of people, and I'll have them all looking to the left, and now we turn and we look to the right. Why yeah. am I doing that? Because they're dummies? No. I want to give them a picture that they will remember mm-hmm. when I'm gone. Yeah. That it is a reorientation. It's not Jesus now shows up because I prayed the prayer. He's there. Right. And we're just turning to him. Yeah. Does yeah. Does that clarify? I think so. Absolutely. And maybe you want to talk to Brad and I about that next week. I think that's he, a great idea. He and I yeah. have chatted over this many, many yeah. times. And I know I, I've asked versions of that question uh, in this space for a long time and will mm-hmm. continue to because yep. I think it's really, really, really important. For starters, that we understand that uh, as our understanding of the beautiful gospel evolves over time or broadens or deepens, uh, it is going to change the way we present the gospel to others and the way we call others to respond. And I think uh, it's <laughs> the scriptures are very clear. We have been conscripted to go and make disciples. And so we, all of us, listeners and myself, continue to need to um, better understand the tools that we have uh, better understand the gospel that we're presenting so we can do that well and continue to call all over the world people gospel. are built for reconciliation you've heard me say rescue reconciliation yep. restoration they are built for what i believe is the true and beautiful gospel which is um it's an invitation to come home it's an invitation it's it's a process of reconciliation is yep. what happened at the cross rather than uh, a punishment yeah. that that he took instead of us. People are not. I don't believe in their their spiritual and psychological DNA is not created to lean into someone who says, "Well, I was going to punish you, but I punished somebody else." Right. But to lean into welcome home. Yeah, welcome home. And so that's a huge part of. And my gospel has evolved a lot in the last dozen yeah. years on that side of Indeed. what exactly took place at the cross. Yeah. Good. Well, this has been really good. Thank you for that. Uh, Sorry, that was longer. More questions than I realized I was going to ask, but there we go. Uh, Folks, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Come back next week. We're going to have Brad with us. Really looking forward to that time. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, And uh, we are here every Thursday evening uh, on YouTube, on Facebook. Uh, If you'd like, you can hit subscribe on YouTube, hit the little bell so you get reminded when we get on there. Uh, And also, if you'd prefer to get the audio, just uh, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Look for Impact Nations podcast. And we're there. Uh, Leave us a rating for for us as well. That's really helpful. Um, Thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.